Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin, and this is a comics podcast. This is a comics podcast for people who know that the magic we see on the pages and on screen are made by artists, most of whom are freelance. And boy, does the alleged COVID relief package not address their needs adequately. You can make a difference by contacting groups like the Freelancers Union, who have really excellent resources on policy measures that they're pushing for that will help people in the comics industry, but all freelance workers everywhere. Um, so go to freelancersunion.org and uh, consider like how we're going to be making sure that people who are not covered by the so-called COVID relief bill are actually getting the support they need. And that includes people like the delivery workers who are bringing you your food. Um, any immigrants who are in it, even people who are documented are being prevented from getting the money that they deserve, despite the fact that they're keeping the whole country uh, functioning at all to the level that it is. Um, we really can't afford to leave people behind right now. Uh, so if you also are looking for other ways to get involved in your community, considering mutual aid um, organizations, and you can always tweet me, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. I know a lot of folks organizing around the country, um, but I wanted to keep the perspectives and needs of freelance artists and creators on the top of our minds right now. As we go into our conversation today, I have an interview with somebody who I'm extremely <laughs> excited to be speaking to, um, someone whose work I've admired for a long time, and I'm still a little bit uh, nerdy and nervous to, to be interviewing. Um, I'm being joined by Jerry Ordway, uh, Jerry got his first professional comics work in the summer of 1980. In the years since, he's written and drawn the adventures of countless iconic characters such as Superman, Captain Marvel, the Justice Society, All-Star Squadron, the Avengers, and the Fantastic Four. As an inker, he worked on Crisis on Infinite Earths, as well as Zero Hour for DC Comics. In the 90s, Jerry co-created and drew the Wild Star for Image Comics, wrote and drew his own creation, The Messenger. Also in the 90s, his award-winning hardcover graphic novel, The Power of Shazam, retold the origin of Captain Marvel, which spun into a long-running monthly series featuring painted covers and writing by Jerry, with art by penciler Peter Krauss and inker Mike Manley. In recent years, he has started self-publishing his comic Proton. Last year, Jerry reunited with his All-Star Squadron collaborator, Roy Thomas, for an 80th anniversary Captain America story for Marvel Comics, followed by... This year, a Submariner story written by Alan Brennett as art of the celebration, part of the celebration of Marvel's 25th anniversary. Next up, work on the launch of Dark Horse's comic adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I, um, I, I just like it's impossible for me to not say crisis on infinite earths <laughs> and like imagine that there's a lot of echo Um your work has been a part of so many huge moments in the comics industry. So I'm just really excited and grateful to have you joining us. Oh, thank you. So tell me, how did you get started as an artist? Um, and how did you get into comics uh, as a as a lover or enjoyer of the medium in the first place? <clears throat> well, I think most kids draw when they're little. And, uh, you know, it's a way to, if, if, if you have kids, you know that you can hand them paper and crayons or whatever, and it'll occupy them. So I think I was certainly given paper and crayons. And uh, I I kind of, I think I, I really liked just drawing in itself. Um, but once I found comic books, I really, uh, I think I, I kind of fell in love with the idea of telling stories on paper. I mean, rather than just doing pictures. 
And mm-hmm. uh, that's really where it started. And I kind of, I think I discovering Marvel comics when I was 10 years old, I had read some DC stuff earlier, but uh, the Marvel comics were, they just felt like they were my generation's comics, you know, and the D- DCs all felt like something that preexisted me in a way. And I guess that was a, uh, you know, me already being snobby <laughs> as a 10 year old. <laughs> <clears throat> but I grew up in that era with uh, the Batman TV show, which I remember mm-hmm. watching very excitedly watching it when it debuted in uh, 1966. So it, there's a lot of stuff like that that I was very, um, uh, I think, in, influenced by. And uh, as a, again, as a kid, when you're drawing, you're looking for some sort of, I don't know, a pat on the head or whatever. And uh, I, I definitely had a good support um, group. My mom and my aunt were very supportive and, uh, you know, I, I think they felt that just, you know, getting that kind of uh, little recognition for doing a drawing or, or for making a homemade comic or whatever always felt kind of special. You know, I mean, you, you, you really get no, I don't think you have a better, uh, your lifetime fan really is your, your mom or your, you know, your family. So uh, I think that's really fueled it really um, as a, you know, you start as a kid and then you get to a point where you think I have to get a regular job. What's a, how can I ever do comics? <laughs> um, so I had worked in, I got a job in as a typesetter back in uh, the late seventies, right out of high school. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I segued from that into an art studio where I ran the camera department because I'd had, you know, some expertise by that point running stat, stat machines and, and shooting film and things like that. So, um, hmm. At the art studio, I tried to learn how to become an illustrator. And I wound up coming back to comics because I think they saw that was a, you know, my strong suit. And the uh, people that ran the studio then got work. They had done some work for Western Publishing. Western did a lot of, it was the golden books, coloring books, and these magic frame uh, uh like drawing trace things that you could, you, you, I don't know if you, anybody really have to be old, but you remember they, I, I, re- I remember, I remember this like as a general concept. Yeah. They were, they were like in a plastic sheet and then underneath was kind of a, a waxy kind of thing. So you'd take, the, yes. you'd take the yes. uh, stylus and you could draw and then you'd pull the sheet up and it would disappear. So you could keep drawing and erasing, so to speak. So these were like their mainstay. They sold these things, you know, pretty cheap, but uh, I wound up drawing a, DC Comics superheroes activity and coloring book. And uh, then I wound up doing a four part Marvel Comics activity coloring book. It was like everyday workbooks. They were mm-hmm. written by educators. And uh, you tried to work around that to make to make them exciting. But uh, <laughs> <clears throat> that first DC thing is what actually got me. To, I got, got the attention of DC, though I didn't know it. Um, mm. I had tried to get in get work at dc i had gone to from you know wisconsin where i was where i was born drove to new york during uh the summer of i think 77 and uh got turned down went back stayed with my commercial art wound up working on the coloring books and then in 1980 the summer of 80 dc comics had a a uh, an official talent search and editor joe orlando was conducting it at the Chicago con. So I brought samples from my coloring book stuff. Mm. I brought those samples cause they were the most current. And, uh, I waited in this long hallway for most of the day from about 10 in the morning till 
it was about five, I think, by the time I got seen. And I just kept looking, you know, watching Joe Orlando and, you know, from a distance moving up one, you know, one more person because he spent time with everybody. He was really good. And meanwhile, while he's doing this, Paul Levitz kept coming up to him because Paul was Joe's assistant. Paul kept coming up to Joe and he'd say, Joe, you haven't taken a break. Let's take a break. You need to knock. You know, we can stop. You can do this tomorrow. And Joe said, no, no, no. I'm going to take care of everybody. I want to, you know, get everybody in the room. So finally, my turn. I get up there, I show them my samples from the coloring book, and they were like crazy stuff, like Wonder Woman without the stars on her pants. Instead, the hmm. stars were in the sky, so the kid was supposed to find Wonder Woman's stars. He's looking at this drawing, and he is punchy. He doesn't know what he's... He's like, wait, why is Wonder Woman... Have, why doesn't she have any stars? What's what's going on? What's going on? And, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well. And then Paul Levitz comes by yet again to say, Joe, we're going to go to dinner. And he looks down and he goes, oh, Jerry Ordway, we've been trying to get in touch with you. And I'm like, what? What? Wow. <laughs> so I spent this whole day in a hot, sweaty room, uh, hallway. And then Paul, you know, immediately saw my name <laughs> on the piece and goes, I, you know, because I was working through an art studio. So I wasn't like a freelancer. So they had no way of contacting mm -hmm. me. You know, the contact for them, they had approved all the drawings I'd done. So. They, uh, oh, wow. they were aware of it. Yeah. So that started, uh, I think a week after that Chicago con, I got my first, you know, uh, inking job in the mail, uh, to ink a Carmine Infantino story. And, uh, you know, it was like, oh my God, I think I'm in, I'm in comics. <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, you telling me about the coloring book, like I remember the sorts of activity books that you'd get. Yeah. I, I and how confusing it would be to be looking at one and not understanding that that's what that was the activity for. How amazing. Yeah. Well, I still have the artwork yeah. too, which is funny. I, I've oh, looked wow. at every so often I'll go through the basement and, you know, I have a, some, cause these are like 16 by 20, really large. Um, and uh, I have some of these pieces and I'll look at them and I go, wow, you know, those, I could see why someone would be confused because <laughs> they were, <laughs> they all told a story. But as I said, they were written by, by educators who didn't know anything about comics so you'd always try to save it somehow or make it make some kind of sense because I was, right. you know, I was a comic fan and, and I thought, wow, this is really stupid. <laughs> well, you know, you're right to like focus on the storytelling piece of it. Like that, that's what kids get drawn to, too. I I have to roll up. I don't know if the year would work out. Do you remember? Have you seen the meme of um, like Lex Luthor stole 70 pies? Like there's a page from a <laughs> oh, DC that's... activity book that is like a became a famous viral meme on the Internet. Uh, that's funny. I wonder if that's in there because I, I think there is a page like that in the the coloring book I did or the activity book. That's funny. I'm going to send this to you. You might be behind <laughs> this huge Internet meme about counting. That is like so many layers removed from a source that it's data at this point. That is funny. Um, yeah, I did. I did the uh, like I, I remember drawing a Lex Luthor one and it had something to do with counting. Um, but I think that the, there was another guy who worked at this art studio who did the kind of like a cartoony, he did a lot of objects and things like that in the book where if it was pies or whatever, he would draw kind of a cartoony pie and then they would stat it or, you know, that type of thing, a star or a sun or whatever. It was always kind of a, a way to, because I was, I was drawing a little more realistically or more comic style. So I think for the age group that they were aiming this at, they wanted something that was almost, you know, like a, well, it was, it had to be very identifiable. So to draw a sun, it was a sun that we would all use maybe even now as an avatar or something. Mm. It was that very simple, but more graphic kind of uh, 
um, thing. But uh, yeah, I did a bunch of puzzles. I also did, you know, a couple of uh, toy things like uh, GoBots. I did some full color oh puzzles. Yeah. 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 And then you also were involved in some fanzine stuff. Oh, yeah. As from, well. the, from about the early, well, I'd say about 1974, I started doing fan stuff. And it was all through the mail at the time. It was, I mean, people, you, they, nobody can appreciate how wonderful it is to send somebody an email to go. I mean, now it's, you know, you can go on Twitter, you can do all this. But back then it was all either you had to know somebody or you had to find a, you know, uh, a fanzine. And fanzines were usually done as, you know, people, no, nobody did them on schedule. So you could even, <laughs> you know, you could write a or do an ad, take an ad out in the comic buyer's guide or, or one of these places and, and say, send in for my fanzine. And a lot of times you'd, I would send, you know, you'd tape like 30 cents to a piece of paper in an envelope and, and mail change. And then you would never get it. And you'd think, wow, what's going on? And like a year later, you something would show up and you had already forgotten about your investment of 30 cents or whatever. But uh, I guess in some ways that's like when you join a, a Patreon and they don't update for a while and uh, then suddenly they do. And you're like, oh, free podcast. And yeah, I keep hearing about it. You know. I mean, people I've talked to different people about Patreon and I think I feel kind of almost like it would be too much pressure, <laughs> you know, because I would be too. I don't like to. I hate to owe things, you know, mm. I, I, like if I do commissions, I always tell somebody when to, like I'll take payment up front, but I will tell them, mm -hmm. you know, exactly when I'm ready to start. Because if you get paid for something and you take five months, by the time you do it, you feel like you're doing it free, even though you aren't, you know what right. I mean? Right, right. Because you're no, you know, you're not going to get a paycheck for it because you already got it or whatever. So I, I just, uh, I think a Patreon would, would, feel like almost too much to manage, you know. But I believe you were part of a successful Kickstarter that became a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. So I, I um, semi-automagic, uh, which actually came to me um, when I, when I was talking to Alex DeCampi like mm -hmm. a long time ago. Um, and I, I was so excited because I just love this combination of like your, your art and her writing together is so, was such a cool thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess for, it's uh it's who, who's the publisher on this Dark Horse, right? Well, they yeah they they published it in Dark Horse Presents, and then we did a Kickstarter with a, a entirely new story. It was like I think the Kickstarter had I want to say fifty pages of new material. Oh, okay. So the the only thing that's available now, I think, for sale is still Dark Horse as the uh, the initial um, the first story arc. Um, but yeah, oh. it was fun. And, and it, what was fun about it for me, you know, again, I having been in comics for ages and ages, I, I told Alex, I said, you know, I got to tell you this is a, after having, you know, drawn comics for over 30 years, it's gonna, actually going to be 40 years, which is scary. So I was thinking about that 1980 is when I started. So this summer will be 40. But uh, what's scary about it, what, what was interesting was I told her, I said, you know, all these times I've drawn all the comics I've drawn. I've never encountered more things that I've never drawn before in, than I have in her script. <laughs> and it was cool, you know? I mean, you hadn't drawn airbags from uh, an airplane <laughs> growing teeth and trying to eat people in a nightmare. Right. right. Because I, 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 who, who could say? No, I, 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 really, I really enjoyed that comic. And I just love the comment. I mean, it's, a, it's an intergenerational yeah. comic, right? And 
I think that that's really special to have two people from different generations yeah. working together. Well, on she's a got, I mean, piece. she also had a, I've, I never really did a lot of horror stuff. And I think she's got like a really good, uh, you know, she knows, she definitely knows what is scary and what's not scary. I'm, hmm. I'm not somebody I like, I like reading horror and I like all that, but I'm not somebody who you would choose to draw a horror book. So I think that works, you know, because it's kind of an unexpected, um, and again, that, for me, it was fun because it's the type of thing I hadn't drawn much of. So mm. um, I enjoyed that. What's interesting also, like I, you know, when I, when I think of your work, I, I think a lot, and this is another funny thing, as you were talking about, um, you know, how you really related to Marvel the most as a young person, is you've done so much DC uh, in general. And a lot of it also, particularly of DC characters that mm-hmm. were retro at the time you were writing them, like yeah. they were already retro. Yeah. Um, and it's something that you've talked about in the text of your comics when you, in, you know, in your Shazam powers of Shazam series, like Mm -hmm. being retro and nostalgia uh, is, you know, part of the themes that you're looking at as well. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting to hear. You're like, Oh, this other thing is old. So when did, did that change for you? Did you start to have a different feelings about like art that is drawing on older aesthetics or is about themes of nostalgia or the past? You know, I always think, I think back on when, what I, when I grew up, it was, you know, most like my early childhood obviously was in the sixties, but probably remember the seventies mostly. But my mom had a, my mother had a tavern and we lived in the back of the tavern. So she was, you know, divorced, single mom, basically raising a couple of kids and we were there. So we lived kind of at home, but you know, through that kitchen door, there was the tavern. So we were, the tavern was part of our upbringing and the guys that it was mostly men. There were a couple of women, but mostly old retired guys who'd been in World War One. You know, some guys who were World War Two were the younger guys back then. <laughs> mm. But these people all had a 19, really a lot of 1930s vernacular. I mean, it was kind of Damon Runyon-esque, you know, the, the tavern <laughs> itself. So yeah. that, that kind of implanted, I think, and in my, just in my sensibilities. And I, I think when I got to the first comic thing, of course, the first series I wound up doing regularly was All-Star Squadron, which was mm-hmm. set in, ni- in you know, 1940, 41 or whatever. December 7th is the start of the series. So I do feel like I was typecast to a degree by that. But at the same time, I'm very comfortable with it because I do like history. I'm a big, uh, big fan of, of reading about uh, eras past and... Uh, you know, I think uh, I love detective fiction from the 30s, from the 40s. I mean, big Same. Raymond. I love Raymond Chandler. I love Dashiell yeah. Hammett. I love, uh, I mean, I've I've branched out and tried to find other stuff from the, like the James M. Cain and stuff. And, and uh, I, I, that's the stuff that I really enjoy as far as privately, you know. Um, but I, so I guess it's the, the fact that another thing that changes, I guess it's different if you're like if when I first started drawing comics before I got into comics but when I did my fanzine I did it when I was in high school I did two issues mm-hmm. of okay comics and the by the second issue I had connected with another artist in Milwaukee uh, Mike Macklin and Mike was so I was 17 I think Mike was 25 and it was like almost like an older brother kind of thing because Mike knew more about the 1950s comics he also liked the 1940s comics mm-hmm. so i think by virtue of having a friendship with him at that time 
I was also exposed to like the Black Terror and um, uh, the Simon and Kirby stuff from the 40s because Mike was a really big fan of that. So I think, you know, a lot of our life experiences kind of lead us in a certain way. You know, um, I just read something. They said like, you know, we all know this anyways, but like when you're say 10 or 11, the pop culture that you uh, get immersed in tends to kind of dictate your taste in a way too when you're Mm -hmm. so i think you know having uh all those different life experiences kind of molds you in a way that makes it some of these things inevitable you can you can fight them but uh you know they're that's where you're going anyways you know yeah no i just think it's so interesting because it's like you know like in the 80s and the 90s like you know jsa all-star squadron that's like the 80s and 90s doing retro stuff from world right. war ii right I, I was i was reading your blackout whiteout um issues that of justice society of america comic mm-hmm. and i was struck out how you're like yeah we're gonna talk about world war ii because that's <laughs> what you should do like what makes those characters special i to me well for me like i've always just thought that those particular characters had interesting aesthetics designs to their costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really was like, well, what, what, what's interesting that they have to say per se. And you kind of pointed it out like, Oh, well, what's interesting is that their commentary on world war II Cause that's like what they're there to, to be. Right. That made a lot of sense to me. Right. Well, those characters that I always felt strongly about the, you know, again, Roy Thomas is the guy who introduced me to, to all-star squadron and a whole bunch mm-hmm. of characters I didn't know. And I really enjoyed the fact that there's so many pockets of comic history that didn't survive because the companies went on, they, either they went away or the character was so obscure that never got used again after, you know, 1945 or something. There's a bunch of things like that that are, are fascinating to me. Um, uh, but when you have the JSA, for example, I always felt like the JSA, you don't have to worry about Batman and Superman, you know, like Golden Age. Oh, do they exist? Do the... You know, the whole thing about crisis trying to stream, <laughs> streamline everything. Well, the, the big thing about the JSA wasn't the fact that Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman were part of it. It was the fact that it was anchored to a specific time, not only the beginning of comics, but also World War II. So you have similar to Captain America and Marvel, you know, obviously figured out a way to make Captain America the man out of time and stuff. But to me, JSA has always been about that history. So if you're going to do a story, you have that all that history to play with, you know, and that I think makes it more interesting than something that just doesn't have that. Like it would be like talking to uh, uh, an elderly person who has experiences that you maybe only read about, you know, like in mm-hmm. our time, like where we're dealing with right now, you think about how extraordinary the circumstances are that it's worldwide you know, the yeah. viral stuff. But, uh, you know, there's really no, nothing we can compare to in, in even my lifetime. Yeah. You know, so you think about people in World War II where they actually had to sacrifice food. They had to grow, you know, victory gardens and things like that. And they had rationing for food and gasoline so that, you know, the soldiers could have, you know, gasoline and soldiers could have, you know what I mean? It, it There's a yeah. sacrifice element that, we have less of a connection to, you know, than they did. And, and and again, so if you're talking to somebody from that era, that's gold. That's what I want to hear. You know, what right. was it like to live through that? Or what was it like to, you know, experience this or that? So that's to me what the JSA offer. And, the, and 
they should always be linked to World War II anyways. But, you know, and you can work out any kind of science fiction-y story element to explain why they're still, a, why they're, why they're still around, why they're not, you know, uh, mm-hmm. mummies <laughs> or something. <laughs> but, uh, I but, agree. Yeah. but that's what makes them interesting. And, and every character is like that. I mean, you have to find a core interest level. Like what is the, how was Dr. Fate in, you know, when he was first created or how was Green Lantern? They all had like a basic concept that you can always go back to and find something that relates to today, you know, the best re- relaunches of any of those characters always go back to the basics and they don't always reinvent everything, but they'll find something that speaks to today or to whatever mm-hmm. the time they're reinventing it, you know? Well, you're the guy who made Shazam a thing, I think for people of, of my generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, I, I think that in my head, Shazam was just sort of like, He's like a Superman, but who has stylized eyebrows because that's how he was originally drawn. Right. And I was like very excited that there was a physical tell for him because yeah. I, I I think characters should have that more as a stylistic note. Absolutely. But it, it's apparently not just that. Like, how did how did you become a, a fan of Shazam? And like, why has that spoken to you so much? Well, I'm lucky in a way that I think sometimes if you're, if you grow up with something and it's your favorite thing ever that you can't really do it because you don't have any, uh, you don't have a way of telling if you're good or bad, you know, like Mm. if you love something too much. So in, in the case of Superman and Shazam, I wasn't a DC reader. I didn't read Superman until maybe the eighties, you know, Mm -hmm. like when Gil Kane, cause like Gil Kane was a favorite of mine. I like Kurt Swan, but I just wasn't into those books. So for me, with Shazam, it was the same thing. I really wasn't someone who was waiting anxiously for the chance to do it. It was that I found a way to do it. And the guy who got me hooked on it was um, the same editor that I worked with on the Batman movie adaptation was Jonathan Peterson. He and I Mm -hmm. started talking about it and we found a way into it that felt like it would work, you know, for that time. But again, it comes down to the concept. I look at the original concept, and we're talking 80s. The original concept is very dark. It's about a boy who's on the, living on the street selling newspapers who follows a stranger into a subway tunnel. You know, I mean, there's, there's elements in there that are so dark. They're not yeah. that different from, you know, how does, how does someone like that basically come out of it optimistic and smiling? You know, so that's what makes him different from Superman and that's what makes him different from Batman and, and any other characters. You find that, you know, with Billy Batson, it was he lost his family and he's basically it explains the entire premise of the Shazam family or the Marvel family was that he was trying to recreate his family. And uh, that was the hook. And the, the other hook for me was that um, around that time that I was doing it, um, my wife and I had our first child. And then uh, by the time the the, the uh, regular monthly series was out, I had a, uh, my first son in '95. So, I mean, that all informs you know your your approach. So by the time I was doing the regular Shazam comic and I intro- reintroduced Mary Marvel, mm-hmm. I had a daughter who really didn't have much comic-wise beyond Archie comics in that era, it was all bad girl art and uh, highly sexualized, high heeled leather wearing <laughs> females right, who were right. just eye candy. So, so, you know, that was something that 
I don't know that I would have had that same perspective had I not had a daughter and, you Mm -hmm. know, seen how slim the pickings were for her if I wanted her to enjoy comics like I did. Because I I tried to push comics on all my kids and they all responded, you know, to a degree. But Rachel's the only one who really took up uh, and started drawing and writing her own stuff. So, oh, wow. but yeah, at the time, I, I I felt it was very painful. Like we would be watching the the cartoon shows, and you had you know, the Batman show had uh, um, various characters and stuff. But you had Catwoman. But then they introduced you know Batgirl, and then they, you know, they did the Superman show, and they introduced Supergirl. So there were finally kind of on at least on TV, there were characters that were mm-hmm. um, kind of good uh, role models for you know fiction wise for, for her, but those didn't exist in comics. So that era, you know, is the Punisher era and the Lobo era yeah. and the uh, <laughs> big gun era and stuff. So we were, you know, when I did the, the regular comic, I knew the main thing was we were swimming against the tide, you know, there well, was also, yeah. nobody doing smiling heroes. And, and it, it, you know, I think it, while it was being published, it was kind of underestimated because of that. Because it was, you know, it was kind of lighthearted, even though we did dramatic stories, it still had an optimistic, you know, um, mm-hmm. I just never wanted to pander to that. I I felt like it would have been a violation of that character's premise, you know, to make him dark and broody and everything else. Well, the result is, I think you have a series that's very timeless. And a lot of those things that, like, were the trend at the time are very much like, oh, man, that's so 90s. Right. And it's almost looked at as like a you know, I almost like people like it ironically at this point. I, I, you know, I came of age of like, that was my era of comics that I began just Mm -hmm. because of the chronology of my life. But I didn't like the aesthetics of that time at all. Um, It didn't speak to me. And I, something about this more traditional style, I just found it to be more, more elegant Mm -hmm. and um, it still works. (laughs) Like, I don't know. know. You know, what's funny is this, this is a lesson in, Again, it's a lesson in when you when you're reading comics like I did when I was a kid, one of the comics that always stood up and it's a funny it's kind of funny now to think about it, but I was a big Avengers fan. Mm-hmm. And I told this story maybe before, but uh, there's a an issue of the Avengers where Hawkeye and Captain America, the entire group shows up, you know, at, at the bad guys whatever their location and the bad, one of the bad guys says, the Avengers. And Hawkeye says, you were expecting maybe the strawberry alarm clock. Ooh, which I love it. was a 1960, I'd say probably like 67, yeah. 68, mm-hmm. one hit wonder. They did incense and peppermints. <laughs> you know? yeah. But I remember as a kid reading that and going, oh, wow, they just referenced the current band. The danger of that is, of course, that five years later, no one, if that's reprinted, no one knows who the hell, you know, Strawberry Alarm Clock are. So, I do. But I, I, always, I, I always took that as a lesson, though. And that's why, like, mm. when, when I was writing stuff, when I was writing Superman or whatever, I'd always think, and I talked to Mike Carlin with Superman, we'd ju- just chat about stuff. It's like, can you use this slang? How long, how much, you know, how many mm-hmm. years will this slang be understandable or... You know, like you, it's almost it's better to be a little bit more generic in your slang than to try to be so on point for whatever's happening at that moment that it winds up looking stupid a year later. So I've always tried to think of that when I've written um, stuff is just does it need to be like, oh, my, my God, that's just what I heard on the street today. It really mm-hmm. doesn't. I mean, you could still, 
you know, you could still watch an old movie and not uh, feel like it's in another language, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I think that that Roy Thomas one, though, with this incense and peppermint, just that just cracked me up, the strawberry alarm clock. That became kind of yeah. like the thing not to do, even though I liked it when I was, you know, 11 years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Shazam, well, I, a, yeah. Shazam was always supposed to be, uh, that was the other hook that we came up with was the idea that uh, Shazam was really uh, that place that time, you know, hasn't changed. It's that small town feel. It's, you know, it was a Midwestern ethic. That's where I grew up in the in the Midwest. And there were certainly places that were like that, even, uh, you know, where everybody's friendly. And, and, you know, it has kind of like that, wow, this is the 1950s or, is it, you know. So. And you addressed it in the story in an interesting way, yeah. which I thought was really cool. Yeah, Shaz- um, Shazam basically puts the puts the city in amber in a way. Um, he kind of freezes, the uh, slows down time or what have you. But uh, and then you have him. You're the guy who had him break out and like wear some normal clothing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I totally. But the speak speaking of like indie comics, but also time capsules. You had um, uh, one of the doctors be like, "What is it, Mister Natural?" And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> Which, for folks who don't know, is a character from Robert Crumb from the indie comics from the '60s. But like, I love, I love that stuff too. Though, I think, but I'm a I big think, nerd you know about funny Is I think yeah. that that I think that joke came from Roger Stern, and that's what's funny because <laughs> we were. I, I for some reason I remember that coming up, and it was like he. I, I'm. I I want to give him credit for that because it was just. Like funny, I was thinking of like, you know, you always had the guy in the kind of almost the cartoon guy with the end is near sign and mm-hmm. he looked like some kind of, you know, uh, like somebody in a robe or somebody with the long beard and the long hair or whatever. And I think Roger Stern threw that my, my way, which so I'll give him credit, even if it's not. <laughs> but I think it was him because that's the fun part about, you know, having a, a comic community in a way. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of miss that in the pretty much the last 20 years. But when in the nineties, all the Superman got, I mean, I would still see everybody, you know, and we were good friends. So we'd see each other at shows or in the office or something, you know, you just would pick up where you left off. And, um, that's the unfortunate part of really the big thing is DC moving to California. You, you know, we lost that, that kind of, uh, um, I guess that connection in a way to the just casually going up and seeing who's new and, you know, looking at artwork that's coming in or what have you. Um, now you're now mm-hmm. back to, you know, looking on the internet, seeing new artists and picking up new comics at the comic store and seeing, you know, new people. And, um, you know, it's anybody you ever, like you hear people complaining all the time about comics. Oh, they're terrible. And oh, think, you know, I even a lot of people um, message me and appeal to me in the way of like, yes, that's the way comics, you know, should be and everything. And I say, well, that's the way we did it. And it's a classic style, but I think there's tons of good stuff. Always. There's always going to be tons of good stuff, you know, and, and to, to not have it be exactly as you remember it from 1985 or whatever. I understand that nostalgic appeal, but by the same token, if you love art and you love story, there's tons of stuff to find, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. uh, there's, plenty of books every week that I find, you know, that I buy. Um, uh, so I think that's like a, one of those unfortunate kind of arguments that comes out of people being nostalgic, but yet at the mm-hmm. same time, 
maybe trying to find an excuse for why they're not buying comics or maybe they're, you know, excuse for mm -hmm. why they're not as into the hobby as they used to be or whatever. Or sometimes they're hostile to people who they think of as being new or different from them. Yeah, and there's that too. I mean, there's, there's def, but, but the, you know, like Twitter, which you're on, I'm on <laughs> Twitter is, is like the, all the bad letters that people wrote to the letters to the editor column that never got printed because they were just cranky, you know? Yeah, <laughs> now, I hear you, but... Now you have a, a venue for it. You know, no one can say, well, you know, we're not going to print that. But they right. did, in the old anyway. days, they would print, they would say, yeah, that one's not going to get printed. <laughs> Although I'll tell you, uh, this is going to get, this will get me banned on the internet. I when I, I read lots of older comics and mm -hmm. I, I often read the letters, um, including the ones from like my own, you know, time of when I ran began reading comics. And I, there's like, there's some comics that are famous for having excellent letter sections that mm -hmm. like live and die by it too. But overall, I think sometimes they choose the letters from like the dumbest people. Like they're just <laughs> not very articulate. It sounds like they're, maybe it's because they're, maybe they're all written by 10 year olds and that's fine because it's yeah. 10 year olds. You know what I mean? But well, I'm, I think, I'm like, mm, you know what know it, it was, it was, here's something like the letter columns paid. I want to say they paid 50 or 75 bucks. So that was like freelance work. If you were an assistant editor, you'd oh. often get to write the letter column. And, you know, it was, again, it was, it was something you did in an evening, for example. Oh, wow. So you'd take okay. the, you'd take the letters and some books got 40, 40, 50 letters a month. Some books didn't. Right. You know, but the books that got 40 letters a month, you could pick and choose. In other words, like if you, if you're uh, on a, maybe a lesser selling book or something that just wasn't as, you know, much fan interest, you might get like 10 letters. So your, your choices are, are, are limited, <laughs> but you're also limited. It, whoever wound up writing it, you know, again, it, nobody probably trains anybody. You just do it instinctually. Um, like Mike Carlin had rules. And for a short period of time on Superman, I, I wrote the letter columns oh, and wow. I didn't do it because I wanted the, you know, 75 bucks. It was because I felt like, Oh, I'm writing and drawing the book. I'd like to, have this connection. So I would kind of, I'm sorry for the alerts I'm getting. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't hear it. So you're oh, okay. Good. Um, but, uh, so I, I wrote, I did them for a, a period, I think when I was doing adventures of Superman, mm -hmm. when I was first writing and drawing it. And, uh, it's harder than you think because, you know, there's a formula for it. And again, it's not that you pick the most boring letter. You don't want to pick something that's nasty because basically mm -hmm. it's not constructive criticism. But you'll pick stuff that somebody will say, hey, I didn't like this or you did this wrong. I'm happy to print that, you know, and 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 thank them for correcting me on something because, you know, there's always going to be an expert on one specific thing in your audience. You know, you're always mm -hmm. going to find that. But mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of like I said, a lot of editor, a lot of the assistant editors would do it just for the, you know, for the extra money. And, uh, I, you know. Again, I don't know, like some editors are better than other editors, you know, and some editors <laughs> connect more with the audience than others. And those are the ones that people tend to remember. You know, that's I guess that's the best yeah. way of explaining. I think those people tended to have the better letter letter pages because they actually did, you know, treat the letters with some respect. As a community building space. Yeah. 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 Well, you've had a lot of different jobs in the comics industry. And I, I realized like I. I don't feel like I've ever had a really in-depth conversation with someone with a straw who's an, who's been an anchor. I mean, certainly nobody who's inked crisis 
before. Um, but just generally speaking, like I've had artists on who do some inking, but mm-hmm. you're someone who just done a ton of inking. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about like, you know, you, you began by doing your, your illustrations there. You were doing both pieces. And then when you came on DC, you were doing a lot of inking and, and you've continued to just do this amazing inking work. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is it, what was it like shifting to doing the inking role? And then you got to tell me at least a little bit about inking on crisis because that is sure. one of the biggest comics well, the, that ever happened. The first thing is I, I like, the technical aspect of inking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that appealed to me visually when I read comics. I always was, I was thrilled to see Joe Sinnott's name and Wally Wood and, and um, Tom Palmer and Klaus Janssen. I mean, oh, those yeah. are just a couple of names, but those guys did a lot of inking on multiple styles and they always had mm-hmm. a, you know, uh, they, their, their work showed through, Sometimes it overpowered, but most times it was, you know, in, in a nice complimentary way, but it's a technical job and mm-hmm. a good anchor should also know how to draw because you're interpreting somebody else's, you know, chicken scratching and, and you have to know what to do with it. And, uh, so I always liked that technical aspect of it that, that appealed to me. Um, but when I first got to DC, I would love to have been a penciler right away. Cause that's what I was trying for. And the, Paul Levitt said, I think you're more of a finisher and we need finishers more than we need pencilers because mm-hmm. they had a lot of guys who did layouts. So they had people who did kind of, uh, it was a transition period. You have to, I think in, when you, you're looking back on 1980, there was, were maybe, you know, a couple of years into people like P. Craig Russell and, and Mike Zeck and, uh, you know, Howard Chaikin and stuff, people who were putting more work into the pages than the previous generation because the previous generation were, you know, they were the professionals who had a certain amount of work that they did to maintain an income. Whereas Mm -hmm. the young guys could spend eight hours on a page, you know, and make it as good as possible. So there was a transition there. So I was inking initially, I inked a bunch of short story things over people who did kind of more rough, uh, less detailed pencils. And Mm-hmm. I added stuff to it. So I guess that became suddenly, oh, he's good. He's going to be able to Im- enhance this. So when I did worked on Rich Buckler, you know, I was adding to it. I wasn't just following lines. I was actually being paid a little extra to do more detail and lighting and things. You're, but that's the difference between just inking and finishing. Right. So you basically got a, a less complete pencil drawing. Maybe it didn't have any shading in it. Maybe it didn't have any light source, any of that. So, um but I enjoyed that because it was kind of like more like penciling because I was actually just doing a little drawing with ink. So I did mm-hmm. that and I kind of got stuck because I was good at it. They liked it. So it was hard to break out of it. So right. I had actually was working on All-Star Squadron. Rich Buckler left after four or five issues, maybe five. And then a new guy came on um, and the new guy was, was decent, but he was very generic. And it was really my style that was carrying it over because I had done the first bunch of issues. So I became kind of more the, you know, I was doing a lot of work and I felt kind of like people see Inker and they don't really know what he does or they think, you know, you're just tracing or whatever. So it's like a weird, it's a weird thing. So you want to have some kind of feeling of contributing and you want to be acknowledged for it. But just by virtue of that credit, you don't get the, you, you know, people don't know what it is. So therefore they don't know what you're doing. So, right. I wound up saying I would love to do penciling. I kept asking Lynn Ween, who was my editor. I said, I'd really love to do penciling, penciling. And 
It never happened. I sent him penciling samples. He liked them, but it just wasn't going to happen because they didn't want to upset the apple cart. Everything was going fine. They didn't want to lose me on All-Star Squadron. So finally, I had Ernie Cologne, who was an editor, who's also a fabulous artist. Ernie uh, was editing at DC in like about 82, somewhere around there. And he saw my samples and he said, hey, would you like to draw? It's an eight-page backup in the, I think it was going to be in Flash. It was the Creeper. And I was like, hey. Oh, I love the Creeper. Well, I said just, hey, it's penciling. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and then I said, but you know what? I would like to pencil and ink it. And I'm not sure how fast I could pencil to do a monthly deadline. So I agreed to do that. And then I called Lynn Ween up and I said, I'm going to quit All-Star Squadron because I'm going to get to pencil the, re the, the backup, the, the Creeper. And he shot back at me, like, without a second. I mean, it was really funny. Before I could even, I just barely get it out of my, out of my mouth. He said, why don't you pencil All-Star Squadron? And I'm like, uh, there's a penciler on All-Star Squadron. I don't want to get somebody kicked off a book. No, no, mm -hmm. no, it's no problem. It's not, you're not going get, to get him kicked off. I, I have plenty of other work. I'll shift him over to, you know, this other book. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> so then I had the problem of starting on a book first time penciling on a book and not really knowing if I could make a deadline because you have to draw 22 pages a month. It's yeah. harder than, I mean, inking, it feels like a lot of the mental work, storytelling and all that pacing and stuff is done with penciling. That That's the big part of the job is not the drawing and the refining. It's mostly trying to break a plot into a manageable number of panels per page and get the story that the writer wanted, you know, so it was a harder job, and um, but I I jumped into it, and I wanted to make the the change because I was still pretty young, and I I think you can get used to the income. Like when you're inking, I could ink, you know, maybe 25, 30 pages in a month, whereas the inker didn't get paid as much as the penciler. So I was like, mm -hmm. gee, I don't want to get used to that money and not be able to then make a, a, a switch because I've got other obligations or a house or payments or whatever. So I did the switch and I never looked back on it, but, you know, I worked with Roy then on All-Star Squadron and then Mike Macklin came in as an inker and then Mike and Roy and I created Infinity Inc. And we did that. And by the time I was in Infinity Inc., I was kind of burnt out because DC had this like a, uh, Roy Thomas was in California and Roy basically controlled by this point after about two years, Len was no longer editing. Roy was editing and writing. So he controlled the earth Two stuff. And by virtue of being full-time working with him, I never had any editors in New York ask me to do stuff. So I was kind of stuck just on that. And I always wanted to do Batman. I wanted to do other characters. So, uh, you know, I, I couldn't quit Roy in that way. So I made the jump because I kept getting offers from Marvel. I made the jump to uh, ink John Byrne on Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, so the, Roy can't really get mad at me because I'm not going to another DC book. I'm just going to jump. And, and it actually felt like the right thing at the time and everything. And uh, on top of it, you know, DC was like giving me a, I, I was asking for a little bit more per page for penciling. And it was like, oh no, this is much as we can give you. And the minute I went to talk to Marvel and it was Mike Carlin who was editing a fantastic four, Mike said, <laughs> what's your rate? And I told him and he said, okay, we'll give you this plus, you know, three more dollars. So it was like, yeah. they, you know, and again, Marvel sold better than DC. So 
you know, it was just kind of a, it was a good gesture, but it was funny at the same time. I forget what it was. It was like my penciling rate, I think was, I want to say it was like 90 bucks at DC. And <clears throat> my Carlin was going to give me, he said, you know, they have approved you to, for, for 99, but I'll give you a hundred, <laughs> you know? So, <clears throat> and the minute I did this and switched over to Marvel, then DC is suddenly like, oh, wait, we're going to give you top right. So then they started throwing, you know, the top right, and they tried trying to get me back. And uh, I did a whole bunch of covers in that time, which is kind of funny. It was like yes. around 1984. Um, I did a bunch of covers for DC while I was, you know, doing inks on, on Burn. Uh, and then partway through this, you know, I get, oh, uh, would you be interested in, you know, inking Crisis? And I was like, uh, I still have these issues for burn. I was into eight issues and oh no, it'll work out because <clears throat> you'll start crisis on issue six. You should be done with the fantastic four by then. And unfortunately DC jumped the gun on it. And, um, George, I guess had, <clears throat> didn't like whatever inks he was getting. It wasn't from Dick. I think it was Mike DiCarlo and he just didn't feel it. And that mm -hmm. happens, you know? Sure. So he really, he, he, he wanted me and it's like, if I don't start with issue five, then, you know, he was going to quit. That's how I'm hearing it from DC's point of view. I didn't, I didn't hear that from George cause I didn't know George at the time. So I'm just hearing this hmm. from, you know, the DC production person. So it's like, Oh my God, I don't want the guy to quit on this thing. So the month that I did crisis five, I also inked the last issue of fantastic four, but I also had to do a DC presents annual that I'd, I got kind of roped into by Julie Schwartz <clears throat> and you were never allowed to kind of bail on a project with Julie because he was a stickler for that. So he wouldn't let me out of it, even though DC is the one that put me in this predicament. If I didn't do crisis, I would have had no problem doing that DC presents annual. So DC is the one who threw it in there and they wouldn't let me any, give me any, <laughs> any leeway there. So for one month, <clears throat> maybe a month and a half, I had my, my friend Al Vey was in a studio in Milwaukee with me and Al really wasn't getting much work. So I said to Al, if you'll do backgrounds and, you know, finish like erase the pages and then fill in the black areas or whatever, um, we have, I'm asking you right now, if you're willing to work seven days a week until we get this done, I said, I'll order pizzas in, I'll, you know, <laughs> pay for food or whatever. So we did that. We, uh, you know, he, he and I showed up seven days a week at the studio and we worked from, you know, day till night. And we did pretty much, I think I, I wound up inking between just the main inks on these things. It, you know, it was something like five, I think five or six pages a day, which is amazing for me. I, I was always like two pages was pretty much it. But so we got we got it done. And I, I spent most, I mean, like I said, with the crisis i couldn't pass off stuff to al because it was a lot of figure work so it really wasn't a lot of background to worry about but it was like eight thousand figures on a on a page or whatever um and the same was true with burn i mean the burn stuff had a right. very tight um uh and an organic feel so al did more like filling in blacks and erasing and stuff on those um but he did a, a lot of work on the dc presents annual um because that was something that was, you know, it, it, it worked out for him in that in that sense. But we, you know, somehow we got it done. 
Um, well, this really points to the importance of the style of the inker and making the difference that like Perez was like, oh, this guy isn't working. I want this other guy. Like, how do you establish your style as, as an inker? And there's definitely some inkers who I can just recognize like right away. Mm-hmm. And then uh, like maybe Sienkiewicz or Klaus Jenison and other people are a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, they'll sort of reflect yeah. more of a different styles for different kinds of artists. Well, I think that's part partly to do with what, type of inker they are i mean there's a lot of people who are really masterful technicians but they're not necessarily people who can draw a lot like they're not somebody who a lot of them probably could pencil but maybe they don't have that confidence in penciling so they're great for doing a a smashing job on something that's really nicely penciled and already has style so in other words like if you were inking alan davis for example the end result is going to look like Alan Davis, but slicker or however, you know, you you use your pens and stuff. So the guys that stand out tend to be guys who are, I mean, I say guys, um, it could be women as well, but people who can, would do maybe an extra percent of something and adding a little of their personality, their drawing into it. The, like I said, Klaus Jansen, Bill Sienkiewicz, when he's ink stuff, Bill just basically, it becomes like a really weird mix where you can still see the original penciler, but you see Bill all, you know, cause that's just Bill. Yeah. Bill has, he's like that in person too. I mean, Bill is just like a big <laughs> personality. So, I mean, it all comes out. Um, but Jansen, uh, Tom Palmer, uh, there's, there's tons of good guys. One of the guys who I, whose work I've liked for years is Dan Panosian. He does a lot of covers, <clears throat> but Dan has got a very distinct, um, rendering style on top of his, his nice penciling is that his rendering, it, it comes down to whether you like pen work and whether you enjoy your tools and you're not just yeah. using them as a means to an end. Like a lot of people will try to p- ink a page to try to make it look really super realistic. Whereas a lot of us like the idea of what those pen strokes look like. So the pen strokes become almost like stylized, uh, you know, in the, in and of themselves, but they're not mm-hmm. realistic, you know? The, the best comics to me have always been like that is, is that little element of stylization that kind of uh, uh, you can look at as a technician or as an artist and you go, wow, look at the pen work, you know? I mean, Walt mm-hmm. Simonson's like that. Walt inks, when he inks his own stuff, um, you, you know, you could ink him and still get Bob Wachek, for example, ink uh, Walt on a lot of stuff and Bob was able to capture Walt's look. But when Walt inks himself, you can see that there's just a lot of interesting line work going on that doesn't isn't going to happen if somebody else inks you because the same is true with me. I mean, when when I pencil stuff for another inker, I would always tend to pencil it very tightly. When I'm going to ink it myself, I don't want it to be that tight because it would right. be boring to me. So <laughs> yeah. I like it's the I like to think of it as you know being on the trapeze without a net. Um, the you try to get away with the least amount of of you know, tight noodling, uh, rendering or anything in a pencil so that you can actually discover it while you're, while you're inking it. <clears throat> but, uh, but like I said, when I'm, when I'm doing it for somebody else to ink, then I'm going to draw it more tightly because I don't know who's going to ink it in a lot of cases. <clears throat> you don't always get that. Like, you know, people think, Oh, you get to choose your colorist. You get to choose this and this. You really don't. I mean, in some cases you might, but generally, you know, uh, in my experience, I've always had to, you know, I'd ask for somebody and I'd never get that person. And it doesn't always wind up being bad. 
sometimes you find somebody new who uh, who does a great job on you. But but it's you know you tend to maybe pencil a little more defensively because you don't know. Right. <clears throat> I, I I accused Ron Garney of this years ago. <clears throat> Ron Garney's another favorite of mine. I love Ron's stuff. And Ron did this uh, when he was doing Justice League back in the, I guess maybe 2006, something like that. He had moved back, or he was at DC from Marvel. <clears throat> and I saw his pencils. And when I saw him at, in person, I said, Ron, I love the, the the work. I said, but boy, you're trying to idiot-proof that stuff, aren't you? And he he's like, mm. he just looked at me and he laughed because I could see it. <laughs> I just, you know, you try to create a style that, doesn't leave a lot of leeway for somebody in case it's not somebody that is going to do a good job or somebody that you're going to like. So he created a style that really didn't re rely on, on a lot of cross hatching or rendering in itself. So anybody could have kind of inked it. And as long as they followed the lines, it would look good. You know, <clears throat> I like the description though. Defensive. <laughs> it is. I, it's... I, I totally get it. <clears throat> I mean, some people, uh, I know writers have, done that in you know if they worked with somebody they didn't know who they're working with uh some writers would do that as well and try to either over explain or um you know try basically oh i know if i if i know i'm working with so and so this guy's you know either not going to finish the job or i mean everybody you know we want to get the stuff done, but at the same time you don't want somebody to screw up on it and and bail out halfway through it either so uh, there's all kinds of little ways you can try to preserve your vision somehow, you know, in adverse situations. But, uh, mm -hmm. but I was going to say, you, you wanted to talk about crisis. <clears throat> yeah. Um, did you have speci any specifics or just well, on a riff? <laughs> you know, th th there's, the, there's the question of like, obviously there was a, there, DC knew, it seems like they knew what they had in their hands when they were launching it because of the way that it was being promoted and structured. But, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're going and you're inking like George Perez, who's like crowd shot. Everybody's in this picture. Uh, and you're the guy who has to go in with the details to actually get all of that right. into what is already the most full of people, com complex, composed crowd shot in the history of oh, mankind. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you navigate that with, with the pen? Well, the hardest part, and again, this is something that I guess anybody who has inked George knows is that George is probably the only guy in comics, um, even including Phil Jimenez, who, who likes to throw <laughs> detail and, and figures and stuff. George is the only guy who can get as much story content on a given page. Nobody else can do that. And, and the way he does it is he goes microscopic. I mean, he goes and, and it's none of it's wasted. It's not like, uh, He'll do, you know, a, a figure that could be like in crisis, a good example. You might have a panel with maybe 25 figures that are about an inch tall and each one of them would have costume details. And that inch tall drawing that you're inking is going to print at like maybe five eighths of an inch tall and is on bad printing, you know, at the time and color. So it's almost like a waste, except that it's there and we both know, you know, if he did it, I'm going to do it. Nobody's going to take shortcuts. So we, it, it was interesting because none of that was, was working towards the printing process that existed. That printing process was pretty terrible. Um, yeah. They were one of the lessons that you'd find out when you, when you ink stuff in the, uh, in the pre offset days 
was that these letter these were letter press presses. There were big, gigantic presses that had metal plates that transferred the you know the image to the paper, and their paper was on giant rolls. They were created for the Sunday comics that the newspapers ran. So these machines dated back to the early part of the century. <clears throat> so they printed in a way that, because they were printed on metal, they put a coating of, of oil on the newsprint. As the newsprint ran through the rollers, a thin coating of oil went on the newsprint that kept, I guess, the paper from maybe sticking to the, to the, to the, uh, you know, the plate, because it, it was a plate that had raised areas. In other words, an offset is a, is a flat surface. Uh, letterpress had raised areas, and those raised areas is where the ink line would get printed. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if you can mm -hmm. imagine it yeah. visually, but it would be like uh, a white area or a non-color area would be just indented, and the color area would be would be raised a little bit. That's how the ink was transferred. So the presses would run as the books would come off the presses if you had a high print run. By the end of the print run, the plate would be worn down, so all the lines would get thicker. <laughs> so mm -hmm. as an inker, you had to be aware of the fact that you couldn't use too fine of a line, but you couldn't use too thick of a line because anything in between, it would, it would, it would generally flatten and widen everything you did. So <laughs> you would put a lot of work into something, and you would see it printed, and it would be like, whoa, <laughs> what the hell? <clears throat> but uh, um, you couldn't let that deter you because ultimately your audience in a way was the people in the office because that's where you got your jobs. So, oh, you know, you always yeah. did a good job. And when it went to the printer, it was, you know, everybody would say a little Hail Mary and hope it looked good and hope the, you know, <laughs> everything. But that was the case with, the, with Crisis. So the first thing when I got Crisis, they sent me uh, the, it was the, the Flash in the beginning of the first issue, I think it was issue five. It's like the Flash is, or was it the Flash? No, it was the Psycho Pirate and the Monitor, I think, mm -hmm. in the beginning. is I think it, yeah, I yes, don't have I issue read, five I, with I, me. I reread that issue for, but, for you. But yeah. it's like yeah. a page or two of figures against the black. There's really no backgrounds in the first two pages or first couple pages. And those are the first ones I got. So I'm like, whoa, okay, I can handle this. I ink these pages and then I get the next, next batch from George and it's the double page spread with everybody in the DC universe on this double page <laughs> spread. Everybody in the DC universe. Yeah. On this thing. And I looked at that and I went, I guess this is what I'm in for. you know. <laughs> and I, what I remember, I think I remember George telling me later and maybe it was Len Wayne um, that they didn't want to send me that double spread first because they figured I might quit because <laughs> there was so much yeah. detail on it. And it's kind of funny to think about it, but uh, that was the only time I also, uh, that I, uh, that I made a mistake in interpreting George because I didn't know him. I, I just knew I would get pages. I'd get two pages in the uh, FedEx. When I'd come to my studio, I'd have a FedEx pa package, two pages. I'd have to basically ink those two pages and put them in FedEx by, the next by that night right so that was my day's work and fedex deadline was i think eight o'clock at night or something so that was what life was like come in see what you were doing be done with those mail them off or you know fedex them back to dc so <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of uh, navel gazing you just had to sit down and do it and um 
again, you put a lot of work in, but on this double spread, George had drawn two characters and it was, again, it was printed on two pages and it's got a split down the middle, two, two artboards taped together. And I'm looking at the grouping on one side and the other side. And I dinked, I think the left side or the right side first. And then I got to the left, what, however, what our order was, but I went, uh Oh, there's two clay faces. And I thought that's not good. And it was, you know, deadline time. So I really didn't have time to call. It's not like you could call somebody and say, by the way, you know, mm -hmm. so I thought there were two clay faces. So I turned one of them into tarantula from the all-star squadron. Cause I was looking at <laughs> he, well, he's not in there. He's not represented. Everybody else is represented. So I had to look and make sure I didn't duplicate somebody. So I put, tarantula. and you know, you're all-star squadron. So yeah. So I put tarantula in there and then later on, George says, you know, th those weren't two clay faces. And I was like, oh, uh-oh. And he goes, yeah, one of them was Plasmus or Plas yeah, Plasmus. <gasps> oh, Plasmus. And the other so I just went, oh, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> George is never wrong. Yeah. So there you are. <laughs> so, and, and that was the thing. I mean, he, he did, I was being paid to do finishes. And what he did was kind of a cross. It was more than finishes, more than uh, layouts, but less than full pencils. And all I asked of him, really, I said, was to make sure that you do the costume details, because if I have costume details, I can figure out which character this is or I can look it up. But without mm -hmm. costume details and I don't have a script because he didn't have a script. He was when he was by the time I joined that book by issue five, he and Marv were discussing it over the phone. And George was working from that. And then Marv would dialogue what George choreographed. Right. So there was nothing to like look at the script and say pa panel five well there's nothing you know i mean nowadays everybody seems to write with a full script where where it's got panel breakdowns and everything else but plot style required you to break a story on your own so you get like basically a big written you know two three page thing and you'd have to go through there and go okay this is one page this is one page and you know you have to basically plot through the go through the whole thing and break it down yourself as to into digestible bites so that it could, you know, fit in uh, 22 pages or whatever. But uh, yeah, there was nothing to check. That was the big problem. So you're sometimes you, you had to just, I just had to, to have confidence that, you know, George knew what this was. <laughs> and if it was something I couldn't reference, then, you know, generally, uh, I don't think we ran into any trouble. The only one that I remember vis visually that they changed Guy Gardner originally had just a Green Lantern costume. And then somewhere in that, from the time George penciled it to where I got it within the space of a day or something, I think um, Joe Staten might have redesigned a costume for Guy oh, Gardner yeah. and right. he, the classic, you know, turtleneck with the flap button, the flap jacket yeah. and all that. So I had to correct that as I inked it. But um, generally he was... You know, again, I don't know how anybody could keep all of that in their head, but, uh, you know, it seemed like he he was the perfect guy, you know, to do it. No one else could have penciled it, honestly. And that's, you know, I, I have tons of respect for George, and I'm not just blowing smoke up his butt. <laughs> it was like there really wasn't anybody else geared for that type of work, you know, who could who could just add, the, add, add that much creativity to it, you know. That's a, like a Jack Kirby, Stan Lee type production. You know what I'm saying? That there's, mm -hmm. uh, there's no no printed script. You know, it's it's a it's a kind of a leap of faith between two people who hopefully are on the same page or, or what have you. But uh, 
But ultimately, that's why, to me, when I reread the, you know, reread the whole series, I don't think the first four issues are very interesting. I know that you have a lot of setup, but I don't think they have a spark to them. And mm -hmm. I think by George, like, saying, let's just do this like we did Teen Titans, we'll talk it over, he'll make notes, and then he'll just, you know, lay it out. I think it, it created a more exciting uh, visual, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. so, I mean, that, 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 that project, again, I don't think you could, you couldn't really recreate it. You know, you could have printed that book 16, you could have printed it from the original art. You could have done like a coffee table of that book sure. and it would have held up because the, you know, the line quality was really good. And the, um, just the amount of detail in there that I think got lost until they finally did a, a nice collection of it in the late nineties. Hello, listeners. That concludes part one of our two-part interview with Jerry Ordway. His career in comics has been going 40 years strong, so there's a lot more to talk about. Stay tuned for the second part of our interview, where we'll discuss his work on Planetary, Tom Strong, and his most recent works with Neil Gaiman. Stay tuned for that.